Romans chapter 12. Uh, we're moving into verses 9 through 13. And as we begin to move to this direction, we've been looking towards application now. And as we consider application, we are wrestling with what does it mean to put into effect all of the doctrine that we have learned so far in the first 11 chapters. That boils down to this first part of two. And that is the basics of effective Christian living. And ever since the very first days of the church, the world has watched Christians with suspicion. They know something's different about true believers, but they don't know what. They don't know why. And so they eagerly pounce on any and every opportunity to justify their choice to reject the Lord. And the church has unfortunately offered them many of them throughout history. In recent years, a shift has occurred in the church that is even more dangerous than the previous way. And that shift is the abandonment of the Word of God to be more likable to the world. And that shift has resulted in a watering down of the message. And so it is essential that you and I get back to an understanding of what is the basics of effective Christian living. What is it that made the Gentile world around the growing church say there's something different about them? I don't know what, but something. Where they began to say, you know what, I don't know what it is, but I trust them. I don't know what it is, but I won't join them, but I won't, I won't hate them either. So today we find that we are in a, in a completely different situation, but we are still to be completely different from the world. And this is going to present some vulnerability. How many of you with a raise of hands like to be vulnerable? This is going to present some vulnerability. Because what Paul is going to ask of you and I, as he is inspired by the Lord, he's going to ask you and I to be vulnerable to one another. That is not an easy position to be in. And so as Christians, we are going to struggle with that. We are going to recognize it. But in order to be an effective Christian, we need to learn the basics. If you want to do anything in life, you have to learn the basics. If you don't learn the basics, you will never get it right. And as we understand what it means to become living sacrifices, we want to get it right. And so therefore, we have these verses here. So the idea that I want us to focus on is this. The basics of effective Christian living will cause continued growth and maturity in Christ. Remember last week, our mantra was maximize your Christian faith. Maximize your relationship with your Savior God. You want to do that? You'll practice the basics. Let's go to our Lord in prayer and ask His blessing on our time in His Word. Father, we do thank You and praise You for the privilege that it is to spend some time in Your Word today. As we look at the first ten, our first five of ten, basics to Christianity, I pray that You would encourage our understanding. Help us to realize where we have fallen short and help us to be found faithful in maximizing our relationship with you. Lord, we praise you for what you have done, what has been accomplished in the doctrine aspects of this book and bringing us to this point. We recognize that it, without the doctrine, we have no basis on which to build this foundation we are going to establish today. So Lord, we love you and thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the richness and the joy that we can endure as we uh, or enjoy as we move through this passage. Lord, we love you and thank you for it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Paul has instructed us that we are to be living sacrifices. Remember Romans 12, 1 and 2? Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, 
Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And if you'll remember, that is optional. You see, not every Christian is going to do that. Not every Christian is going to become a living sacrifice. But if you are going to become a living sacrifice, you must have these basics. And Paul does not make these optional. These are not optional. These are basics in the Christian growth and growing to maturity. So Paul also reminded us, uh, moving into last week, that we are not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And remember, this is the third time in two chapters that Paul has reminded us of that. That we are not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And Paul is going to build on that this week. Because last week he revealed that when we look at the at ourselves in an appropriate manner, that that is built in light of the doctrine of the first 11 chapters. Living sacrifices. Today, he's going to build on that foundation, still established on the doctrine of the first 11 chapters. If you do not have that, you do not understand it, you have to go back. Because you will not understand the simple aspects of basic Christianity without it. And so Paul now moves into giving us ten imperatives or commands. In fact, if you were to uh, look and highlight every imperative that Paul gives us, there's there's ten of them in this passage that we're going to look at today. And I've boiled them down to five keys of basic Christian effective, basic effective Christian living. And so we're going to look at those uh, in these five keys. And they are first, love. We must love. Paul's going to define this. This is the word agape. Agape love. What does that look like? Second is devotion. Devotion. Third is diligence. The fourth is perseverance. The fifth is contribution to the saints. Each one of these is directly related to the body of Christ. Each one of these makes you vulnerable to the one who is sitting in front of you, behind you, across from you. Because in each and every situation, you will have to Think less of yourself. Open yourself up. And in some cases, be corrected. And so we recognize these five basics of, a, of effective Christian living, and we're going to add five to them again next week. But let's go ahead and we will get into the first one. Love, verse 9. The Scripture says this, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. You see, first, in order to understand agape love, we cannot have love and at the same time have not love. You cannot have both. Paul says there should be no hypocrisy. Love in the family of God must be sincere. It must be genuine. It must be real. Agape love centers on the needs and the welfare of the ones loved. Usually, this is God's relationship to us. But Paul is using it in your relationship to each other as part of the family of believers. And Paul makes this a very clear and passionate statement that this truly is a family. And as it is truly a family, he has some very clear instruction, and we're going to see it all the way through. But agape love centers on the needs and the welfare of somebody else. Whatever the personal price that is necessary to meet those needs and foster that welfare. Paul is not concerned about the cost that it's going to take from you. What he's concerned about is you meeting those needs. He says, let love be without hypocrisy in the family of God. Do not let love be tainted. In fact, in order to understand what this looks like, we need to keep your finger here and turn to 1 John. 1 John 7, or chapter 4, verse 7 through 11. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. This should be a very familiar passage if you've ever studied anything to do with love. 1 John 4, verses 7 
through 11. The scripture says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. See, this is not optional, believer. This is not optional for you to decide who you're going to show love to and not. This is not optional for you to decide how much you're going to reveal your love or how much to hold it back. Paul is very clear, and he is agreeing with John, that love is an appropriate understanding of your response to what God has done for you. And this goes back to Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It is a reasonable act. It is a reasonable response to what God has done. When you read through the first 11 chapters and you are not changed, you better read through them again because you missed something. You missed an important point. It is not dependent upon the cost. If it was, Christ wouldn't have come to die for us in our place instead of allowing us to suffer the consequences of our own sin. But in the Greco-Roman world, they viewed agape love as weak. But in Christ, the exact opposite is true. It is not the world that teaches true love. It is evidenced only in the Lord and only in His church. As we begin to understand this, we recognize that when we live on the worldly side of things, we begin to see agape love as weak. We begin to see agape love as selfish when actually the love that we are experiencing is selfish. Genuine love is so important to supernatural living that John declares, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. That was just a few verses down from where we read. You see, genuine love is vital to the church. Genuine love is vital to the rest of the basics of Christian living. If you do not get love right, you will not get any of them right. And so Paul begins with love. Love with no hypocrisy. And this is what it looks like. First, you abhor evil. You abhor evil. This is an amazing statement giving what we experience in our world. It says, let love, verse 9, be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Paul is literally saying, view evil in horror. Be horrified by evil. When was the last time that you viewed evil in horror, horrified by it. Now, I'm not talking about major aspects, genocide, uh, or a major, some other major aspect of evil being committed. I'm not asking that you view the Holocaust only in horror. The Holocaust is horrific, but that is not what Paul is saying. Do you view all evil in horror? You see, as we've understood through the theology portion of this book, it should not surprise us the level of the depravity of mankind. Because we understand that man is totally depraved. There is no good in man at all before Christ. And in understanding that, it should not surprise us where evil goes. But that does not mean that we respond casually to evil. We've just moved through a holiday in which the world casually handles evil. They casually observe evil. Unfortunately, 
as a culture, we have become desensitized to evil and even become casual participants as Christians in evil. If you want to love one another without hypocrisy, you will be horrified by evil. You will be horrified by it. If you are horrified by something, do you go and pursue it? You are truly horrified. You will not pursue it. You will not engage in it. And you will flee from it. Paul is saying, abhor evil. And this is not a response to others, but this is a personal conviction to flee. This is not you saying, well, you're evil and I'm going to avoid you. That's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is this is a personal choice that you make in your own life to avoid, to find evil horrific and to respond appropriately in your own life. Therefore, you're not pursuing it. You're not becoming like it. But then in the direct opposite of that, he says, cling to what is good. Now, we have all heard in football or basketball terms, uh, when the defensive coach is telling his players, encouraging his players, he's saying, I want you to stick to that guy like glue, right? We've heard that. That's exactly what Paul is saying. Stick to good like you have been glued to it. The word literally means cemented to good. Cemented to what is good. Cling to what is good. Paul is saying, be sent, <laughs> I'll get it out. Cemented together with those things that are good. We understand that there is nothing good except those things that are from the Lord. And we're going to build on this when we come to it next week. We don't have time to really uh, dissect it very much today because Paul is going to come back to it at the end of the chapter that we're going to look at next week. But in light of fleeing evil, there is a place to turn. Turn to those things that are good and cling to them. Cling to them. I remember when I was going to Calvary, and it was my freshman year. I'd never been to a haunted house, never been uh, to anything like that. One of um, dorm mates said, hey, come on, i got a haunted house to go to. I have never been so anxious to get back to what I felt was safe and good as that night because of the evil that was there. We should abhor evil, be horrified by evil, but cling to what is good. There is no doubt that we live in a world of trouble. It is no surprise that the ungodly struggle and seek an alternative way to remove stress, guilt, and so on. What is surprising, though, is that Christians follow them. Christians sometimes even lead the way. Why? We need to understand what is good. We need to understand it truly. And we need to be totally committed. Totally committed to abhor evil, to be horrified by evil, and to love what is good as the Lord does, expressing commitment to His attitudes as well as to His actions. So, what God seeks in the believer is not so much a single worthy act as a continued quality of life. So before we can move into any of the other basics, we need to understand that this is not a one-time deal. You cannot love without hypocrisy one time and say, I've done it. This is a lifestyle. And what we're about to engage in is a lifestyle. Next week, we're going to return to this good, and we're going to add more definition and more understanding. But we need to understand that we must live the lifestyle of love and the lifestyle of the next four basics. The next one, devotion. Verse 10. 
Scripture says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor. How many times have we read through this passage and just skipped over it? Just skipped over what it meant. Oh, well, I understand. Devotion to one another. Okay. Preference to one another. Okay. I understand all that. Paul is saying something very powerfully here. First, devotion to one another. The Christian is to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And the word for devoted is an especially endearing term. And it is usually used of immediate family members. And this points to the ones who are most cherished in one's family. Paul relates this to the church. Paul points this to the church. He says, Beloved, believers, as we have already established coming into this in the context of this, he says, Be devoted to one another. Loving each other in brotherly love. We are to cherish each other as fellow members of a close family. That's what Paul is meaning by devoted. Cherish each other as members of a close family. Therefore, we are to love each other in brotherly love. That is to express and to experience brotherly affection for one another in the brotherhood of the family of God. Be devoted to one another. But Paul adds a tremendous amount of weight when he says this. Give preference to one another. In honor. Give preference to one another. You see, it is interesting to me that Paul does not add an imperative to devotion. There is no imperative there. There is no command there as such. We have a challenge. We have an obligation. But it is not stated as a command. But he does... In the word, give in relationship to preference to one another. Paul gives a command now. He gives an imperative in this word. Give preference to one another in honor. And this goes against the very nature of our flesh. We do not want to stand aside for anyone. But Paul is insisting that we are to try to outdo one another in giving respect to one another. That is what preference means. Try to outdo one another in giving respect to one another in light of how you view that person. So whatever value you have placed on that person, you are to view them as trying to outdo them in respect and in honor. So when we understand the word honor, that is to respect someone who has shown, or rather, that is to respect the, the respect shown by one which is measured as an evaluation of the other. So you and I as believers are to give preference. We view another believer. And in relationship to the doctrine of the first 11 chapters, do you know what we understand? That you've been justified. When I look at you, and when you look at me, when we understand the doctrine of the first 11 chapters, we recognize something. That you are a special possession of our Christ. That you are a special possession of our Lord. So much so that He sent His Son to justify, to sanctify, to glorify you. And if God thought so highly of you to do so, what is your value? Now Paul is revealing it to me in relationship to giving preference to you and you giving preference to each other. If we truly understand the doctrine of the first 11 chapters, you will outdo one another. 
you will outdo one another to show respect and honor towards each other. What an amazing statement that Paul has just said. And how often we blow past it. Because I've noticed that if we just read this and say, yeah, I'll be devoted to one another. Say, well, when they call me on the phone, I'll show up the first time, but maybe not second time or whatever it happens to be. But if we are devoted to one another, I've noticed that the church will stand out in a world that is selfish, that is self-serving, that is self-ambitious. If we want the church to stand out and the Christians to stand out in our community, we will be devoted to one another, giving preference to one another in honor. But then Paul goes on and he says this, not only are we to love, not only are we to be devoted, but we are to be diligent. What is diligence? First, in verse 11, he says this, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. There are three imperatives in this verse. And as we understand this, we recognize that we are not to be lagging behind. The effective Christian is the one who does not hold back, is the one who is not lazy, does not shrink from or hesitate to engage in something worthwhile. Diligence is connected to the end of the verse and the imperative to serve the Lord. You see, diligence is not necessarily in relationship to each other. Diligence is in relationship to who the Lord is. You are diligent in service because of what God has done in your life as a Christian, as a believer in Jesus Christ. This means that the effective Christian is never one who lacks ambition in serving the Lord. He does not hesitate to engage in the service of the Lord because he is not lagging behind. But Paul adds to this a little bit. He says, serve with fervency. Serve with fervency. Paul adds more with another imperative, fervent. He says, be fervent. Literally, it means to boil over in the Spirit. So do not lag behind. Do not shrink or hesitate, but be fully engaged to the point of being all in. Fervent. Paul adds uh, some incredible aspects to this because fervency means to boil over, means to, to gush over. That means that you and I should be excited about our service to the Lord. Excited about our service to the Lord. Ministry should motivate our hearts and our lives with anticipation of serving the Lord through the body of Christ, no matter what the task is. Let me ask you this. Have you ever shared the gospel with someone who does not know Christ as Savior? Uh, We live in a world that is seeking the rush, seeking the adrenaline, and yet Christians stand back and never share the gospel. Every time I share the gospel with someone, every time that they are moving through and I can watch them, move through, they've heard the gospel, they're starting to respond, they're starting to come to know Christ as Savior, and all of a sudden it clicks. I'll tell you what, as a Christian there is no more exciting feeling than that. Yet how many times do we serve the Lord no matter what the task is, and we serve the Lord, eh, I'll just do it because no one else is doing it. I'll just do it because I better do it. It's my gift, I guess. Is that how we should serve the Lord? Paul says, no, be excited about serving the Lord. Ministry should motivate our hearts and our lives with anticipation, seeking to understand that we are pleasing the Lord because we are giving back exactly what we ought to. So we should serve with fervency, not lagging behind, 
Not hesitating. When you see something needs to be done, you go do it. Someone needs to know Christ, you go share the gospel with them. Someone needs to step up and sing in the music, you step up. Fervency. Be ready. Be boiling over. If you do not, you will never grow in maturity in Christ. Because it is basic. This is elementary. This is understanding what it means to be a Christian. And yet we struggle with it so much. And so the church is mundane. Is struggling because we don't realize what it is. We don't realize that we are to serve in diligence to our Lord because of our Lord. And so we just become monotonous. Paul moves from diligence to perseverance. Verse 12. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted in prayer. The first one, the first of three imperatives is rejoice. Rejoice in hope. As a Christian, you have a hope that the world can only envy without Christ. Yet, do you know what I see? Not just within our church, but as I've traveled around, visited other churches, as I've seen other communities and other situations, do you know what I see of the church? I see a church that does not know they have hope. I see a church that's downtrodden. We must never lose sight of, the, of our hope of things in the future that God has promised to us. Has God or will God keep His promises to Israel? Will He? We studied it. Three chapters worth of theology. We studied that God will keep His word to Israel. That should excite you. Because if God will keep His word to Israel, that means He will keep His word to you. In Romans chapter 8, he says he works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. If you are understanding that he is going to keep his promises, that means he's going to work all things together for your good. Does that not excite your heart? If it doesn't, you are dead. It should excite your heart. It should motivate you to service. It should motivate you to persevere. Your hope is not blind. It is not false. It is not downtrodden. Because God will keep His word to Israel. And because of that, because of the theology, we recognize that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing can pull us apart. Nothing can move us from hope to non-hope. And that allows us to endure trials. The second imperative. The second imperative is, is to endure. If you rejoice in hope, you are more able to persevere in trials. Paul promises nothing less than that you will be confronted by trials. Well, that's not very encouraging. No, it's not. But the reality is, because of your hope, it can be. Because as you are going through trials, because as you are confronted with trials, you will handle them as a testimony of perseverance if you rejoice in hope. And in handling them as a testimony of perseverance, others will see that, will hear the message that you share, and come to know Christ as Savior. And again, God works all things together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. Perseverance means to continue to bear up despite difficult, despite difficulty. Rejoicing in hope keeps our mind in the right place in this regard. You're going to face trials. I'm not going to lie to you. You're going to face trials. There's other preachers that tell you that 
Uh, God wants you to have a big house on a hill and lots of money. Sorry, no, you probably won't. And in light of that, you might have that house burned down. You're going to face trials. You're going to face struggles. And as such, we bear up. We endure. We persevere. Because our mind is in the right place. Temporal things matter nothing. Because eternal things matter everything. So keep your mind in the right place with rejoicing and hope, enduring those trials. And then also this, devotion and prayer. One of the greatest testimonies that I have read is by those men who are in prayer. How can we live in the world that we live in without it? We try all the time. We might pray for meals. We might pray before we go to bed at night or maybe in the morning. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying being devoted to prayer. Devotion means to do something with intense effort. Intense effort. Have you ever prayed with intense effort? You see, we have somehow in our culture gotten our minds that prayer should be easy. That's not what Paul says. Prayer is not easy. Uh, in case you missed it, communication is hard. And while you're communicating with an all-powerful, all-knowing, perfect God, you are not. It's going to take work. You're going to have to be intensely diligent about prayer. We somehow assume that when we do not receive an answer from the Lord, that God is busy, He's not listening, or doesn't care. The reality is communication is never easy. God is perfect, but you are not. You must devote yourself in prayer. And the way Paul writes this, he is again anticipating trials. And we recognize the context of Romans as those who have been persecuted by the, by the government, as it were, persecuting Christians and pushing them away. So Paul is writing to those who have experienced trials, to those who are hurt, to those who have been broken because they are Christians. And he says this, be devoted to prayer. Our devotion to prayer is mocked by the world. When you bow your head at a restaurant, very, very seldom does someone come up and say, thank you very much for your example. You know what usually happens? <laughs> Look at those guys. Have you ever seen that? If you've never seen that, you're not praying enough. In a restaurant. When you bow your head to pray, people look at you like, what is wrong with them? But as Christians, we must intensely desire, intensely pursue devotion in prayer. You see, the reality is the world doesn't have the hope you do. If they had the hope you do, and they were expressing it, they were living it out, they would pray too. They don't have that hope. They don't know what you're doing. Looks like you, to them, it looks like you are just odd, strange, weird. But to the believer, you recognize the hope. You rejoice in the hope. You endure trials. You're devoted in prayer, regardless of what the world thinks. The prime example of this is Daniel. He says, you know what, I don't care what's going to happen. I'm going to go to the same place. I'm going to open up my window and I might pray even louder so that they hear me. So that they know that I'm praying. Yeah, I don't, they'll throw me in the lines then. Big deal. Temporal things are small. Because I rejoice in hope. I endure in trials and I am devoted to prayer. Daniel lived this principle out. You want to have the basics of Christianity? So will you. 
So will you. Finally, contribution. Verse 13. Contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. First, contribute to the needs of the saints. This is the first of two imperatives in this last verse we're going to look at this morning. And we should never be so self-centered that we fail to reach out to others. That's what it means, contribute. Don't be so self-centered that we fail to reach out to others. It means to give what you have to meet the true needs of fellow believers. Now, I don't know as if Paul really had financially in mind here. Part of that, maybe he did. But this could be as simple as an encouraging word. This is one thing that should that we should understand is that this is reserved for the true needs of the true believers, contributing to the needs of the saints. Maybe a phone call. How are you doing today? It may be a letter, an email. We don't do letters anymore. We do emails. <laughs> and it may be an email. How are you doing today? Or it may be a physical gift to them. But regardless, do you know what this requires? That you're attuned to the needs of the saints. If you are self-centered, self-motivated, selfish, you will never know that the saint has a need. You will never see their needs. You will never understand their needs. Therefore, you will never contribute to their needs. You want to practice basic Christianity? Contribute to the needs. That means you cannot be selfish. That means you have to understand where everybody else is at. And you know their needs. And as far as it is possible, you meet them. But then he goes on and he says this. Practice hospitality. Practice hospitality. The hospitality referred to here is the giving of food, clothing, and shelter to persecuted Christians who have lost these things due to their testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. I think oftentimes we get confused as a church and we forget that the saints have needs. We forget that the saints need hospitality. And the word for practice is to never stop. That means there's never going to be a time where it does not end. There's always going to be a need. Practice. Faithful, practicing hospitality. This is something that should be commonly practiced in the family of God. The basics of an effective Christian are countercultural. They are counter our flesh. And they cause us, in many ways, to be vulnerable. Yet when the church members function according to these basic elements, the individual believer is in the least vulnerable position and the most effective position. You see, Paul, all along in this chapter, has been revealing to not think more highly of yourselves than you ought to think. Do not believe that this is an individual effort. It is not. It cannot be. You need the body of Christ, and the body of Christ needs you. And in functioning in that way, the effective Christian will be countercultural. They will be counterflesh, and they will be vulnerable. But they will be most effective. But when we realize the worth, value, and usefulness of a believer's effectiveness is not because of the church, but through the church, in ministry with the church, the individuals who make up the church are, are sinners saved by grace. They're going to make mistakes. By the way, you're a sinner saved by grace. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to hurt somebody. At some point, that vulnerability will hurt you. 
But our identity is because of Christ, because of the doctrine of the first 11 chapters. Therefore, we are not identified because of the church, but by our Savior, God. And therefore, we work through the church, because that is the vehicle that he has employed to do so. Our love is reflection of Christ's love for us. Our service is service to the Lord through the church because of what he did for us. Our diligence is, again, because of who he is. Our devotion is because of our joy in the Lord. Our perseverance is because we understand what it costs for our salvation. And our contribution is because how could we do anything less when salvation has been offered to us? You see, these are five basics. Five basics of Christian living. If you want to be effective in this Christian world, or in this secular world, as a Christian, you will practice these five basics. You will understand them. You will apply them. And you will live by them each and every day. We've got five more to go next week. We're going to come back. We're going to define what good is. And we're going to understand what it truly means to live effectively, effective Christian lives in this very counter-Christian world. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the time we can spend in your word. As it is somewhat of a checklist today, we recognize that there is some powerful things that we ought to do. Looking at five of them today, taking us out of our normal pattern, we recognize that we must do something as Christians. We must understand that because of the doctrine of the first 11 chapters, we will be changed. And we will live countercultural in our world today. Lord, I praise you for the opportunity in which we have today to participate in fellowship one with another as a body of believers. We recognize we are part of a larger uh, organism, the living organism of the universal church. And as such, we want to do our part, guide and direct our study, guide and direct our lifestyles, that we would be found faithful, obedient, upholding this end of what we ought to do as individuals and corporately as a local body. And then that the universal body would benefit greatly because we are not complaining, we are not failing, but we are steadfastly serving the Lord. Lord, I thank you for these five basic elementary examples of what faith looks like. May we accomplish them, practice them, and may you be glorified through it. In your son's name we pray. Amen.